Well, hello again. We will be in Genesis, starting chapter 6, verse 9. Uh, if you're using the Pew Bible in front of you, that's going to be on page 5. So Genesis 6, verse 9. <clears throat> and I'll kick us off by reading from 6, 9 down through the end of the chapter. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. And God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. To make, so make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. Make a roof for it and leave below the roof an opening one cubit high all around. And put a door inside the ark uh, and make a lower, middle, and upper decks. I am going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has breath, the breath of life in it and everything on the earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to continue in the ark, uh, two of, uh, you're to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. And two of every kind of bird and every kind of animal and every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you and be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. Noah did everything just as God had commanded him. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> for years, archaeologists in Italy have been uncovering the remains of the city of Pompeii, which was destroyed by the ash and lava of that devastating volcano. Researchers have discovered much evidence of people attempting to flee that catastrophe, but one man did not run. A famous archaeologist, Colin Burgess, has recorded that at the city gates, they found a skeleton of a Roman guard, and he remained there. Both hands clutched about his weapon, while the very ground on which he stood trembled, and the fiery ash was gradually burying him. After these many centuries, he was found at his post of duty. One commentator has said, you could use that picture of that Roman soldier to be a picture of Noah. Uh, that as the, the, the curse was coming and the pending doom was coming, Noah was faithful at his post. And yet, as we will see by the end of the flood in the next story of Noah, he wasn't exactly perfectly faithful. Uh, so perhaps an even better analogy would be to see that God is the truly faithful one. Uh, you see, the Bible has all sorts of wonderful stories in it. Uh, I'm sure you or your children have grown up seeing uh, the myriad of flannel graph Sunday school lessons about Noah and the ark and the animals two by two. Uh, but the Bible is first and foremost about God. It's a story about Him, about His faithfulness to His covenant and His people. And so while we do learn a myriad of things from the examples of Noah and his faithfulness and, and his work and, and the many other characters, characters we'll find in the book of Genesis, 
the, the main purpose of the Bible is to teach us about God. And you'll notice I expanded the section for today. If you're using the bookmark that, that has been walking us through which passage I'll go through, I cheated a little, and I borrowed this week and next week. So the flood and following, we're going to look all the way through chapter 11, verse 26. And the reason for this is because this whole section is dealing with this basic big idea, is that God will accomplish his covenantal purposes in spite of the persistence of human wickedness. Some more time, the, the big idea for all these chapters woven together is that God will accomplish his covenantal purpose in spite of the persistence of human wickedness. And if you've been following along, then you'll, you'll notice this conversation, as, as Gail mentioned, we've been seeing the creation account unfold. But have you ever considered the relation of the flood to creation? Uh, that, that, will, that will start us off today as we walk through these passages. Now, we're looking at a large chunk of Scripture, so I'll only be touching down in the really critical places. Uh, but we'll, we'll look at this section of Scripture under the three points of the favor and the flood, and then the covenant and the curse, and finally the table and the tower. So first, the favor and the flood. We read here in Genesis 6, these opening verses about Noah and his completion of the ark, and God, or God's call of him to build an ark, rather. But there's a couple things that could trip us up if we're not careful. Uh, it says that Noah was a righteous man. Well, as I just said, as you're going to learn from the vineyard episode at the end, uh, what does it mean to be a righteous man who falls and fails so horribly as he's going to do? Well, we, we actually need to back up one verse and understand the context of this, he's a righteous man. So first Genesis 6, 8 is, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The way that that verse is structured in the Hebrew, it's a particular sentence construction. And so what it's highlighting is that Noah was found in a state of grace. Uh, how do you find favor? Uh, favor is, is a gift. It's not something that you can earn. So by definition, what's happening here is that uh, Noah is being seen as, though, as one who has received the grace of God. So Noah found favor. He, he received God's grace, and he lived from the fuel of that grace that he'd been given from God, and that fueled his righteousness, his walking with God. So just to make sure we're, we're very clear, as the account of Noah tells, Noah wasn't chosen because he was better than everybody else. Uh, he was exemplary in his generation, uh, so yes, there is a sense that he was better, but that didn't mean that he was deserving of God's favor. Uh, so we just want to be clear about that at the beginning. No, Noah was a righteous man. He, he was one who lived out of this favor he'd received of God, not that he was perfect. Well, then we go on, we see the extent of the corruption of the earth is repeated for us in verse, verse 11. The earth is full of violence. And in response to the pervasiveness of sin, God tells Noah he's going to destroy the earth. And he gives Noah these detailed instructions for the ark. And then he says this, I will establish my covenant with you. Unfortunately, this is one of those translations uh, that can be a little challenging. Uh, that, that word, therefore, establish, when paired with the word for covenant, it always means I will re-establish or reaffirm my covenant. And so while this is the first time the word for covenant is used in the Bible, the only way to reaffirm or reestablish a covenant is that God is saying, I am going to reaffirm with you the covenant I had with Adam, which is that creation blessing, the creation mandate 
uh, that he is to be fruitful and multiply, and God will bless him, and through him will come the seed of the woman, as we've been seeing over the last few weeks. So God has affirmed this covenant relationship that he has entered into with Noah, and that through him will come this promised seed. Well, the rest of chapter 6 and 7 put on display Noah's obedience. He builds the ark as he's supposed to. And then God brings the animals and populates the ark, and God seals up the door. Now, if you're to keep reading the flood account in chapter 7, you're going to find that these numbers that are, that are used to structure. The entire section of Genesis 6-9 all the way down through 9-29 is a big chiasm. So it's this pairings that build in. And at the very center of the chiasm is Genesis 8-1. God remembered Noah. So the whole big idea of the flood is God's faithfulness to his covenant. He has reestablished it, and he will remember Noah. But through this, through this story, we get these pairing of numbers to, to help us see the structure. And as we've seen with numbers like 7 and 10, which bear this kind of symbolic significance of, of completion or perfection, so too is 40, and it rains for 40 days and 40 nights. And as you read through the Bible, you'll see how the number 40 has this significance of testing. So we will find that 40 years Israel will wander in the wilderness after the 40 day and night of flood. And, and then later, Goliath will taunt Israel for 40 days and nights. And, and then finally, Jesus will spend 40 days and nights. Moses himself will spend 40 years. You see how 40 is used in the Bible as this time of testing and trial. And so that's what's happening here. I mention this to say that what people tend to want to do in this passage is jump into either defending or debating young earth, old earth, global flood, local flood. And what do we do with this? And I would just say that in, in history of the church, that has not been a debate that was really all that much of an issue. Um, that was a more modern thing, particularly in responding to Darwin. And so people took this really strong stance against that. And I would say there are good arguments to take this passage in both ways. And I can recommend some resources for you if you want to read the different arguments. But I think this is an area where Christians need to be free to agree to disagree. Uh, what is essential theologically is that all mankind and all flesh was wiped out. Uh, that God is restarting. He's reestablishing his covenant, the original one he made with Adam and Eve, through Noah and his wife, and then also through his three sons and their wives. So that's what's critically important about this passage. We can discuss, and I'm happy to, to give you resources about the other issue, but I'm not even going to address that topic today because theologically that's not important. What's important is God's faithfulness to his covenant with Adam, and he's reestablishing that covenant with Noah. And then the pictures, the imagery, the, the language is actually showing us a decreation and a recreation, which is why we sang the creation hymn again. Uh, here's what I mean. Did you catch how this account undoes creation? If you were to read through this, I'm sure many of you are familiar with this passage. What was the first thing that happened in creation? God separated the waters, one of the first things he did, right? The, the waters above and the waters below. Well, what happens here? There's a, a D separating. The waters of chaos once again overwhelm the land so that it's all undone. Uh, we could go through chapter 8 and show you that in 8.1, God sends a wind, Right? Well, that's the same word in Hebrew for spirit, the ruach. And so there's a word play going on here. The same creation is re-happening. God is de-created and is re-creating. Then in verse 2, we read of the sky and the heavens. And just as we read of the sky and the heavens on day 2 of the creation account. 
In in verses 3 through 5 of chapter 8, you'll read about how the water recedes and the land appears. Here in chapter 8, it's the mountaintops appear, but the same picture. And then in verses 6 through 12, Noah sends out a bird, just like on the fifth day. God created the birds of the sky. And in verse 17 through 19, we read of the other creatures and animals of the ground, just like they were created on the sixth day. And finally, there in 16 and 18, just as we saw Adam and Eve at the end of the sixth day, so too we see Noah and his wife and their sons. And then finally, God blesses them, just like he blessed Adam and Eve on the seventh day. It's a decreation and recreation. God is saying that the depths of human sinfulness and depravity will not stop his plans. It will not hinder him moving forward and bringing about the seed of the woman. So again, that's the theological point to be made and seen, is that God is making Noah a new Adam. And that through Noah's line will come the seed of the woman. But the question we're all supposed to ask at this point is, what about the seed of the serpent? Did the flood destroy the seed of the serpent? Well, that gets answered in just a moment. But before we get there, you'll you'll catch that in chapter 8 there, the first thing Noah does when he disembarks the ark is he sets up an offering. A whole burnt offering is what the language does for us. An, An entire burning of an animal down to ash as a sacrifice. And this building of altars will come up again, Lord willing. We'll see it next week in the beginning of the story of Abraham. But what's a fascinating thing about this is Uh, anthropologists and archaeologists have noticed that this practice of whole burnt offerings, of taking an animal and burning it down to ash in its entirety, is practiced in almost every culture and society throughout all all of church history in the ancient world. So I would wonder this morning, maybe you're visiting with us and you would not consider yourself a Christian. What do you make of that fact? Because think about it for a second. In a world of subsistence farming and subsistence hunting, where food is precious, Why would you take an animal, light it on fire, and burn it into ash? I mean, a sheep could feed a family for a week, two weeks, if it's well-preserved. Why would you do that? It just doesn't make any sense. Now, I've heard one reason for this is that the reason ancient peoples practiced sacrifices in religion was because it gave them emotional uh, upholding, emotional stability. It bolstered them. It gave them something to hold on to in the hard days. I don't know about you, but in hard days, I want food. Uh, And in a world where there's no food or very scarce food, you don't burn up and destroy one of the prime food sources you have. I would just really encourage you to think about that. See, friend, here's the thing. Uh, Unfortunately, there's this tendency to believe that uh, it's only the religious people that have to have faith. Uh, I, I, think it, I think it was Mark Twain who made the comment, uh, something about, you know, faith is that thing for which we believe that has no, no evidence whatsoever or something to that effect. But here's the thing, every worldview requires faith. So if you're not a believer here this morning, you have to believe that it actually makes more sense that it bolstered someone's soul, soul to burn an entire animal as their food source rather than to eat it. That's a giant leap of faith. And likewise, you have to believe that it just so happened that the world exists in what's been called the Goldilocks zone. That is, we're just far away from the sun enough to where in the winter we don't freeze, in the summer we don't burn up. That's a massive leap of faith. So I would just say that if you're not a Christian here today, don't for a second think that you are free from faith. Uh, Every day you roll out of bed and put your feet on the ground, it is a massive leap of faith. You're assuming you're not just a brain in a vat somewhere for someone's imagination and play. 
Now, friend, if you've never thought about those things deeply, I would love to speak with you further, and I'll be standing out there after the service. Well, that has taken us through the initial part of the flood. We, we've seen the flood account. It's a fairly familiar uh, section of Scripture, so I'm not going to spend too much more time in it. But I want us to move on to the covenant and the curse, because as I said, the purpose of the flood as decreation and recreation is that covenant element that we see. So I'm going to read chapter 9, verse 8 through 17, Genesis 9, 8 through 17. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish, re-establish, my covenant with you and with your descendants after you, and with every living creature that was with you the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, and those that came out of the ark with you. Every living creature on the earth, I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of the flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, And it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. So God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all life on the earth. So after offering the sacrifice in the end of chapter 8, we now move into this reestablishing of the covenant. Before the flood, God told him he was going to do it, and now it's official. Uh, He's reestablishing this covenant. Never again will God destroy all life. Now, this is often called the Noahic covenant, the Noah covenant, but you might even call it the covenant. covenant of preservation, because it's with all life. He's saying he's not going to destroy all life again as long as the earth continues. And as a kind of prologue to the covenant, the part I didn't read is that repeat of the, of the uh, creation mandate, uh, that, that you are to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So Adam's king and priest role is reestablished in Noah and his family. But there's an expansion to that original blessing in that he now gives a command to not take human life. Of course, that was implied before in the garden. There there was no understanding of those things. But now, as the first sin has seen, when Cain killed Abel, it's made explicit. And this raises a cultural question for us regarding the matters of the death penalty. Uh, See, Christians have not always listened carefully to this conversation, and sometimes we've come to this text and just said, see, that's what it is, the death penalty. However, while Genesis 9 could not be any clearer that there's a principle that exists for the rest of the earth, while the earth exists, because it's a covenant of preservation as long as the earth exists, that there is a principle of life for a life, as you keep reading in the Pentateuch, what you'll discover is that there is a provision made. Uh, See, in, in the Mosaic law, there is an opportunity for someone to flee to a city of refuge if it was an accidental death. And at that city, there is then a trial that takes place. And it says the elders of the city will carefully inquire about all things to make sure what's going to happen, to to see if if this might have been intentional after all. So while the principle of life for life exists till the world ends, uh, there are other provisions that need to be taken into account. So for example... 
we are no longer under the Mosaic covenant, so what provisions would we use? I've already argued we are still under the Noahic covenant, but what other kinds of provisions might we use? Well, for example, let's, let's take as an example the fact that our modern uh, justice system is imperfect. Uh, I think most of us in this room, not all, but most of us in this room probably remember the O.J. Simpson murder trial. I think most of us in this room would agree that justice was not done in that trial. There's a myriad of reasons for that. Uh, One of them would be the fact that O.J. had incredible resources so he could purchase the best of attorneys. Someone without those resources wouldn't have been able to get Cochran and the rest and the boys to help get him off. Uh, Another reason is that O.J. was famous Uh, His fame brought a certain light to that trial that someone else of lesser fame wouldn't have had any any, uh, acknowledgement of. So see, all these other nuances could be considered about that trial and about how justice just wasn't done. Even though we might have arguably the best justice system in the world, justice wasn't done because of all of these other factors. So I bring this up just to acknowledge that while the principle of a life for a life stands until the end, we also have to be wise as serpents and gentle as doves and acknowledge that we live in a world that is crooked in all sorts of different ways. And whether it's money or whether it's fame or whether it's power, justice is not always served. So we have to be careful. We have to be wise. Particularly, you consider the stories of many, many men who were put to death only to be found out that they were absolutely innocent. So the principle stands, but the application of it requires wisdom. It requires gentleness. I think Christians just have to be aware of that. Okay, with that, that, that now established, this covenant has re-covenanted. The, the kind of prologue has taken place. We read this covenant. And God says he's going to give them a covenant sign of the rainbow. Uh, most of the covenants in the Bible have a rainbow. The difficulty is there's no such Hebrew word for rainbow. Their only word is a warrior bow. And so God is quite literally saying, I'm taking my warrior bow and I'm hanging it up in the clouds. I'm no longer going to have it pointed at the earth in judgment. Until the earth comes to its final judgment, I'm hanging my bow up in the clouds. And notice what he says. It's a reminder for him. Why does God need a reminder? Well, it's because he's introducing to us this idea of covenant signs. Covenant signs are critically important for the rest of the Bible story. If you misunderstand covenant signs, it's going to wreak havoc on your reading of the Bible. Uh, so for all of us this morning who are Christians, we, we are under the new covenant, and the new covenant has two signs. I think this is an appropriate time to take a moment to, to think about this. Last week, we saw a baptism. That is the sign of entrance into the new covenant, where, where someone is identified with Christ, dying with him and rising with him. It's a visual gospel, a sign, just like a rainbow is a visual sign. And that sign, in that act of baptism, a local church is is declaring to this person being baptized, we affirm your profession of faith and that you are united with Christ. And that individual is publicly proclaiming their union with Christ. Then, historically, the way this has worked out is someone is baptized into membership in a local church. And then what church membership is, is just the ongoing partaking of the Lord's Supper. Because that's what membership is. You're, you're renewing that covenant membership together each time you take the supper. Because church discipline is the removal, the excommuning, the removing someone from that membership of participation in the Lord's Supper. And, and just like in the Mosaic Covenant, where circumcision only happened once, I'm sure many Jewish men said praise God, but that only happened once, 
So too, baptism only happens once, whereas the Passover happened every year, and Lord's Supper happens regularly. See, unfortunately, there's been this breakdown in understanding of these signs of the covenant and the way they're applied. Uh, see, is what happened was, is particularly starting in the, in the 60s in America, there was this move away from the historic understanding of these things. And it used to be that these are called the ordinances of the church. And so there was no idea in the universe up until about 1960 that someone could be a Christian and not be a member of a local church. Those two things were inseparable. But starting in the mid-60s with the revolution and you know, the, that, the age that was going on there, the counterculture and all the rest of it, what happened was they detached the ordinances from the local church. And so people would just baptize somebody willy-nilly in their lake or in the backyard or in, in a pool or in a river. Notice, not a church wielding the ordinances of a church, but people were just taking it upon themselves, individualizing these things. But baptism and the Lord's Supper are signs of the new covenant. And the new covenant community is the church. Jesus authorized the church to do those things. So whereas the sign of the Noahic covenant is God's reminder and God's sign, the signs under the new covenant is the church's sign that we enact. And we will be doing that at the end of the service, as I said. So God has reestablished his covenant with Noah. And then immediately after that, Noah gets drunk and naked. So again, his righteousness is not a perfection. It is that he's been graced by God. And then Noah responds with a curse to his son's son, actually. There's kind of a poetic justice that's taking place here. Uh, Noah's son brought shame on Noah, so Ham's son, Canaan, will bring shame on Ham. You see the way the poetic justice is working out there? And this little story fits in with the table of nations, what they call it in the next story, to show. Now we answer the question, what happened to the seed of the serpent? Was it stamped out in the flood? And the answer is most assuredly not. Because from Ham will come Canaan, the chief enemy of Israel. And will come Egypt, who will play a great role in, in harming Israel in the years ahead. So, from this curse, this, this story, we get this curse of Ham. And then in the story, in the next one as well, we see that the seed of the serpent is still working its way through, even from within the same family as the seed of the woman. Well, that takes us through the flood and following but now we come to the table, the table of nations, and the tower. Uh, look again, Genesis 11. We'll, we'll do the first nine verses of Genesis 11 here. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. And they said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And they used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they were stopped, and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world, and from there the Lord scattered them over the face of the earth. <clears throat> so I read this section because technically this was before chapter 10. Uh, the, chapter 10 is out of order. Chapter 10 shows the nation scattered, the 70 
again, 7, 10, the 70 nations of chapter 10, uh, is, takes place after God scatters them at the Tower of Babel. The reason Moses puts them out of order is to do this bridge showing you how the seed of the serpent continues to wend its way even out of his own line. So you have the, the curse of Ham, and then it goes into the table of nations showing their different family trees and how Ham's children are, are the Canaanites and the Egyptians, like I said. Uh, there, there's another thing that we see there <clears throat> is that in that story of Ham's family line comes the one Nimrod, and Nimrod will connect us to the building of the tower. Nimrod means let us rebel or we shall rebel. Uh, and so chapter 10 serves as this kind of bridge showing you how the, the curse is going to continue on through before, the, ta- before uh, the Tower of Babel then explains what it was that brought about this scattering over all the earth. Well, <clears throat> Nimrod, again, there's, you can talk about him. He's called a mighty hunter before the Lord is one way to interpret it. Either way, the point is, is that he either built the kingdom that was against God or he himself was against God and found people against God. It's just showing you the seed of the serpent. It's wending its way down through the line of Ham, right? Uh, But this story we just read about in the Tower of Babel is fascinating because the whole thing is God mocking them. Now, it might not read that way unless you see some of the details. But in the ancient Near East, Babel claims to be the center of the world. world. In in Babylonian, that, uh, that word Babel means the gate or residence of the gods, but we read there at the end of that section, the Lord confused, that's the Hebrew word balal, so he balaled Babel. He's mocking them. Oh, this is the gate of your gods. Well, I'm just going to stop construction by changing all of your language and scattering you all over the world. Uh, more, moreover, there's all sorts of these little hints in the story. Uh, God told them to scatter and fill the earth and subdue it. And what do they do? They gather to keep a name for themselves, not for God, and to build a tower, Right? Well, what does God do? They're going to build a tower all the way to heaven, and God has to come down even to be able to see the tower? The language is dripping with sarcasm. The omniscient, all-seeing God has said, well, let us go down there and see if we can see this grand tower they're building up to heaven. It's just mocking with disdain. They declare that, again, they're going to be so impressive in what they do, and God shows up and in this essence, snaps his finger and scatters them, changing their language. So see, since humanity has sworn not to, or since God, rather, has sworn not to destroy humanity again, he brings a different kind of chaos in this story. Instead of the, the chaotic waters of destruction, he brings the chaos of language, of different language, to create disunity. And it's in this disunity that God creates and the juxtaposition of chapter 10 and then being scattered and God scattering them after they were united that is worth taking a few moments to think about here. One of the great discussion topics of our age is unity and the importance of unity. And I agree, that is an important topic that we need to continue to think on. However, it is interesting to note that in the Bible, the last time that all humanity was united, they were united against God. They were all united against God. And so what does God do? He creates or causes disunity. So in the mystery of God's providence, disunity was required to bring about the plan of redemption. Now that's a fascinating thing to chew on. But uh, earlier this week, Ron invited me to uh, lunch with some retired missionaries. 
And one of the couples explained about how this disunity is such a problem and why we do need to pray for unity and seek it. They, they explained about some mission, about missionary friends or how they were in Cameroon for years and speaking about the great tensions in Cameroon. And, and there in that country, it falls a lot, a lot of times down the, the language line, the French speaking versus the English speaking and who has power over certain things and who doesn't. Years ago, I led a number of trips to Belize. And Belize is quite a melting pot of a country. Uh, you, you'll learn that they have indigenous Maya that are still there. They have some of the Spanish who came and colonized it originally. There's Mexicans and Americans, even Mennonites, and a pretty large Chinese population, Caribbean immigrants. It's quite a melting pot. One of the saddest things about Belize is the ethnic hatred, racism, if you want to call it that, but the ethnic hatred goes in all different directions at every different level. And so many times it's also bound up with who has more and who has less. Uh, we could tell our own story. The story about how our founding documents speak that all were created with certain inalienable rights. And yet those rights were denied to many. And as the economy grew, the, the engine of the economy and slavery continued to grow. So that there are many people I could, I could send you to read who have 99% the same exact theology as we do. And yet they use this passage and the curse of Ham to try and justify slavery from the Bible, denying image bearers from the Bible. Now that's just reprehensible. But here's why I bring this up. We have to be wise and acknowledge that sometimes our human ability to unwind unity and disunity issues is not always the best approach. See, Babel shows us that when all people were united, they were united against God. And so great sin can come from both unity and diversity. See, this is why the picture we get here and in the Bible, as the storyline plays out through the rest of Scripture, is that true unity will only be found at the foot of the cross because the ground is level at the foot of the cross. This is why Paul would write, Jesus would speak of, of the ethnic hatred in his days. The Jews hated Gentiles and Samaritans and the feeling was mutual. This is why Paul would write in Ephesians 2 that the dividing wall of hostility, speaking specifically the one between Jew and Gentile, was broken down in the cross. That with the tearing of Christ's body came the tearing up of the dividing wall of hostility. So friends, Christian unity has to be built upon the cross of Jesus Christ. Unity around all sorts of other things is going to devolve but that also, there's another way to look at this unity thing, is there's a way that Christians can be united that is actually then turning on the world. So first and foremost, yes, we need to seek to be united as Christians across different barriers and lines, but, but we have to be careful that our Christian unity doesn't cause us to turn on the world and see us as this, we're the holy huddle and they're the evil world out there. Well, Paul will have none of that. 2 Corinthians 5.20, we are ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us. See, ambassadors are those who take a message that is not theirs to other nations. They don't hide out. They take that message elsewhere. As the late 19th and early 20th century, Pastor George Truett summarized this point very well of what I'm trying to say here. He said this, the supreme indictment that you can bring against a church is that such a church that lacks in passion and compassion for human souls a church such as that is nothing better than an ethical club if its sympathies for lost souls do not overflow and if it does not go out and seek to point lost souls to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. 
See, friends, I fear in the name of Christian unity, we so often can flee from the mission field in an us-versus-them mentality, in a why-polish-the-brass-on-a-sinking-ship mentality. We, we can have none of that. See, friends, we're not called as Christians to wield political power and influence. We're not called to be culture shapers and movers. No, some people might, in God's providence, be put in those positions. First and foremost, we are witnesses and ministers of reconciliation. We're to be lights in the dark world, and the light always shines brightest in the dark. So let's make sure that our Christian unity doesn't create an animosity from the very people that God has called us and sent us to go reach. Well, in drawing us to a close, I want to offer just a couple thoughts about that final genealogy. It's really interesting. If you look at the table of nations, it ends with Shem, and then you get the, the, the Tower of Babel, and then it comes back to Shem in chapter 11, verse 10 through 26. I'm going to read this, and I want you to think about what's different about this than the one we read in chapter 5, verse 10 of chapter 11. This is the account of Shem's family line. Two years after the flood, when Shem was 100 years old, he became the father of Arphaxad. And after he became the father of Arphaxad, Shem lived 500 years, and the other sons and daughter, had other sons and daughters. When Arphaxad lived 35 years, he became the father of Shelah. And after he became the father of Shelah, Arphaxad lived 403 years, and he had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he became the father of Eber. And after he became the father of Eber, Shelah lived 403 years, and he had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he became the father of Peleg. And after he became the father of Peleg, Eber lived 430 years and had other sons and daughters. And when Peleg had lived 30 years, he became the father of Ru. And after he became the father of Ru, Peleg lived 209 years and had other sons and daughters. And when Ru lived 32 years, he became the father of Serug. And after he became the father of Serug, Ru lived 207 years and they had other sons and daughters. When Serug had lived 30 years, he became the father of Nahor. And after he became the father of Nahor, Serug lived 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he became the father of Terah. And after he became the father of Terah, Nahor lived 119 years, and he had other sons and daughters. And after Terah had lived 70 years, he became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. I read all that, even though the genealogies aren't the most riveting pieces of the Bible, because did you catch the cadence that was different from last week in chapter 5? First of all, the lives are diminishing, right? The lifespans are getting smaller, as, as God had said. As a great mercy and grace, God is shortening the lifespan because mankind and our wickedness are not going to get better. Sorry, you're not getting better with age necessarily. Uh, you might be a greater experience of God's grace in your life and by the means of his sanctification, you might be better in that sense. But a long life of sin is just more sin in the world. So God shortens our lives. But did you catch the other change? There's something missing. And he died. It's gone. All of them died. I mean, their lives are getting shorter and shorter and shorter. Why is it missing? Why are we not told about and he died? Well, here's why. Because the story that Moses is telling us, he's doing things with words. And the story he's trying to tell us in this pattern is from this family. The move is now no longer from life to death, but it's going to begin to be from death to life. The plan of redemption will come through this line. That he will bring about his promise through this line. That from death, life will spring. And from this line comes Jesus, the Son. 
the one through whom the door is open for sinners to be brought from death to life because Jesus took the death that we deserved. You see, rather than pour out his wrath on the earth and all its inhabitants, first of all with Adam, and then again with Noah, and then again with Noah after the flood, <laughs> and then with them at the Nimrod, and then at the Tower of Babel, no, God has promised that he would send the seed of a woman who will bring us from death to life. And that warrior bow that he hung in the clouds, that bow was hung pointed at God. And that's precisely where it went off. That even though Jesus was perfect, God took the arrow of death by sending his son to take death for us. Well, the sign of the covenant absolutely is powerful. And every time the rainbow is in the sky, we should be reminded that the warrior bow shot at Christ and he took that penalty and payment for us. And so as with Noah at the beginning of the story, we who are in Christ find that we too are righteous, but not because we were good, but because of the imputed righteousness of Christ, because he took the arrow we deserved. So for all those who repented and turned to Christ, when God looks at us, he says, you are righteous in your generation. You are righteous in your generation. And we, like Noah, will still fail in countless ways. But God has and will remain faithful to his covenant. That's what these chapters are doing in the scope of the Bible. That in spite of our perverse and persistent sinfulness, God is faithful to uphold his end of the covenant. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, how we thank you for your word. And we thank you that you are a God of promise who keeps your word. And we pray that now as we come to the Lord's Supper, this visual gospel, uh, that for all those who have come to you, who've been made anew, who've been brought from death to life, that they would be reminded of your faithfulness, that your body was broken for us. And that Jesus, your blood was poured out in our place so that we could be counted as righteous in our generation. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.